Welcome to The Blind Spot, a podcast where we explore human instinctual drives through the lens of the Enneagram, nonviolent communication, and resonant healing with personal stories from individuals living real human lives. My name is Karen Nance, self-pres, social, sexual blind, three-wing two, with 371 trifix, and ENTP cognitive preferences. I hope you enjoy these stories. Welcome back to The Blind Spot. I have Stephanie back again because last week we just got to know Stephanie and we really dove into typology. It was so fun. If you didn't hear that episode, you can go back and listen. We talked about astrology. We talked about human design. We unpacked Stephanie's Enneagram type as well as Myers-Briggs. So we really integrated all of these typologies and I think it was a great episode. But by the time the hour went by, we didn't have a chance to dive into Stephanie's work. So I'm so happy that we have her back today to talk about what drew me to her in the first place. And that is her amazing work as a sexologist and a metaphysical philosopher. And when I found this out about Stephanie, I'm just like, how fascinating is that? I mean, for this Western medical doctor that is just getting into the psycho-spiritual realm, I'm just like, wow, there are so many people that are doing the coolest things that I want to learn about. So as I have been embarking into this world of the psycho-spiritual and meeting so many people doing so many cool new initiatives to help people deal with this human condition, I just knew that I had to meet with Stephanie, especially as a sexual blind individual. I'm really, really curious to hear about how people are working with the sexual instinctual energy because many of us know from listening to recent episodes or in your own experience, that there's a lot of sexual trauma out there. And even if we don't identify as having sexual trauma, many of us have been traumatized just because we're women in a patriarchal society. So there's a lot of reclaiming that needs to be done around sexuality. So Stephanie, why don't we just go ahead and start and tell us how I know that in the last episode, you said you were selling sex toys out of the back of your trunk at 19. So obviously this is something that you were called into, but when did sex become a more official uh, part of your work and give us the update around that? Yeah, I would love to. And thank you for having me back. I'm so grateful to be here and uh, to be diving a little more deeply into this. Um, Yeah, I don't know. You know, it's funny. Sex was just something that I, my family was just never super taboo about it. I was blessed with a sister who is 16 years older than me. And I was the kid that was like, I was born late. My parents had me in their forties and in the eighties, you know, that didn't really happen. So I was kind of the kid that everybody was like out being teenagers and they just forgot that I was around, I think, honestly. So like all the parents are like drinking, partying, they're playing their crib games at the cabin or whatever they're playing with cards. And they're talking about their escapades and they're just forgetting that they have like, you know, a six-year-old subconscious mind chilling in the back, pretending to sleep and like, you know, listening to everything they're saying. So I'm sure that that had some kind of an impact on how I just evolved feeling very comfortable with all of this. I also now, we mentioned sexual trauma since I've gone into this work myself, which was really just, I started getting curious about, you know, Tantra and like more sexual energy, not as a means to teach, but I just was like, Hey, this is something I enjoy. I want to see how far this goes. Like how deep does this rabbit hole actually go? And I found that I had a shit ton of repressed sexual trauma um, from when I was a child. So I do definitely think uh, if you read Ken Wilber's work, he talks a lot about how in developmental psychology, 
you'll, when something traumatic happens, you can develop either an addiction or an allergy to it. And I wouldn't identify as having an addiction to it, obviously, but it, I definitely leaned more into the like, oh, this trauma is something that I'm going to like attach to. And I definitely leaned more into sex, especially in my like early, early, early teens. (laughs) And then into my late teens, like it's always just been a big part of me. And I believe now that I know what I know about sexual trauma, that a big part of that is likely because, you know, sexual energy was something I was dealing with as a kid. And I, maybe I should have put a trigger warning before I just like, boom, dropped childhood sexual trauma on your audience. I apologize, but we're here to talk about sex. So <laughs> there's that's the answer. Well, and I think that that's something that's super interesting to me because as I have been trying to talk about sex publicly, I'm learning that I should do trigger warnings that everybody has a very different relationship to their sexual trauma. I know that I also have sexual trauma, but it wasn't trauma that I identified as trauma originally. And if I talk to the individuals that were in my life at that time that things happened, even they completely, you know, there's no acknowledgement that that is trauma. And yet it lives in my body as trauma. And You know, I guess I'm just really curious, you know, I think that we have leaned into our experiences of sexual trauma and want to work in this realm and want to talk about this and want to demystify things and want to empower. And so I'm going to call that almost a counterphobic response. It's like there's juiciness here. And so we're like leaning into it. Whereas what I heard is that for people who experience sexual trauma, Sometimes there's like a withdrawal. And so it's almost like, what is your stress response to the sexual trauma that you have? And I want to go as far as to say that I don't think there's a woman on this planet that doesn't have intergenerational sexual trauma because women's sexuality is something that we have tried to control, that we have tried to tamp down, that we have been very afraid of as a culture So, you know, this is why I think it's so tricky because we all have a different way of being in relationship to our own sexual trauma. And so sometimes we actually feel better when we can be really open, direct, and expressive about it. And that can be really triggering for other women for whom they haven't practiced leaning in and talking about it that way. And I don't want to imply that however you are in relationship to your sexual trauma, that it's better or worse. I think what's important to know is how do you want to be in relationship to that? And I think that for those of us that have more of a counterphobic response where we just lean in and are like, blah, like this is what I want to talk about, that I'm recognizing that I have to be responsible with how I engage with people because I cannot assume that they're going to respond to their sexual trauma in the same way And to think that I am re-traumatizing somebody is really painful for me to have stepped into awareness of. So I'm just curious what your journey with that has been. And when did you recognize that the way that you lean into your experience of sexual trauma is different than others? And was that painful for you? Or did you just intuitively know how to do that right away? Uh, I mean, definitely there's a lot of pain. And I think with the you know, just to speak to the the trigger warning and that, you know, re-traumatizing people. And this is something that when we talk about like diversity and inclusion, this is something that's a really hot topic right now. Everybody's talking about, you know, you've got to have consent, you've got to have trigger warnings. And like, yes, all those things are great. I'm not anti-consent. I'm not anti-trigger warning. 
And I do believe that, you know, if we have to basically apologize every time we say something that is our truth, we're minimizing ourselves and we're actually silencing ourselves even more. It is not my responsibility to censor. And this is, this has been a journey. This is where I'm at now. I was not here three years ago when I started talking about this. I've had to evolve into this and I had to learn. I can't take responsibility for the way other people perceive me on social media. So when I started talking about sex and my sexual trauma, and now I kind of just joke that like, listen, if you follow me on social media, you know what I'm about. Just, you know, you might as well be a trigger warning on every one of my fucking posts. You just imagine that I'm not putting a TW every single time in the caption. Like, but for somebody that's following Kara, that maybe isn't used to these topics, then maybe a trigger warning on occasion makes sense, right? So it's about what feels good to you. But I had to learn the hard way. And I mean, the hard way by family. And we talked about this a little bit in the last episode, but like family losing their shit, my mom losing their shit, friends and family completely just like blocking me, deleting me. Like I was on the local version of tabloids, essentially, all because I was sharing things that were very real to me. And that wasn't even when I was talking about sexual trauma. I was literally just talking about sexual empowerment at that time. Like, hey, a woman empowered is a woman in power right? Like your pleasure literally is your power. And coming from that space, that alone was triggering enough to have people just slander block. She's gone off the deep end. You know, who the fuck does she think she is? She probably just like, she might as well be a porn star and not that there's anything wrong with porn stars, but in their mind there was right. So it, it was a journey. And I really had to sit in the discomfort and the growth of like, do I like, what do I do with this? Do I choose to silence myself? Because the whole reason I got into this is because I was silencing myself in corporate. The whole reason I got into this was because I didn't want to be silenced. And I wanted the freedom to talk about and to be the person that I feel I was put here to be. And now I have a bunch of fucking idiots on Facebook that are attacking me for this. And uh, I had to really come to terms with, you know what, haters gonna hate. And, you know, I just got to like Taylor Swift, like shake it off and just share whatever's true to me and trust that that the right people are going to find that and be okay with, you know, that shaking out the wrong people. Yeah. And how has it been for you when you've shown up the way that you show up and you suddenly realize that you're in the face of a woman who feels like maybe you were a little glib or a little insensitive or a little light with something how has that happened to you before and how do you work with yeah. that yeah i can i can think of two really um and both of them are online this has actually never happened in person i don't know if it's because people don't have the balls to tell me in person totally possible um but both times have happened online and i'll both of them are so like in my mind is such an important like visceral moment for me uh the first one was when i actually did write a uh, blog post about my sexual trauma and it wasn't in detail because i've I don't feel that it would be fair to my family to provide detail at this point in my life. Um, but it did talk about how I had this, I had experienced this, and I, it stops with me. And would you share the, what's in the blog post? Just because obviously that's public information and it's the amount that you're comfortable sharing. And I know that I'm curious and I think listeners would just like to know what frame are you coming from when you're talking about your trauma? Yeah, totally. Uh, it was an empowerment topic about why I chose to do sexuality work, which is it stops with me. The generational trauma stops with me. The All of the family-based abuse, it stops with me. And it stops with me because I do not fear talking about it. I do not fear healing it. I do not fear facing it. 
and working with it. And I'm not running away and sweeping it under the rug and pretending it never happened. And don't tell anybody like you were just imagining it and all of that other stuff that can happen with that happened with many women in my, in my family. And when I realized that this was something that was not unique to me, but it was actually pervasive in my family and mostly known in my family, but not taken seriously and therefore re-traumatized all the people it was happening to because they tried to speak up and they couldn't and they were silenced. And that lack of voice just infuriated me. And I just went on a tangent and I was like, this stops with me. It stops with me for my entire family. I'm healing this generation's back. I'm healing this generation's forward. Like, you know, Gandalf um, staff in the ground, fire blazing, like this shalt be healed. This shalt never happen again. So it was from that really fiery, empowered place without really calling out. I've actually shared more details now in this podcast than the blog post even did, but just from this space of how important it is for us to really take ownership. If this has happened to you, if we just look at this from an energetic and a karmic perspective, if it's happened to you in this lifetime, there's a very good chance it has happened to you in previous lifetimes. There's also a very good chance it has happened to your parents and your grandparents. So it's in your soul's generation and your familial generation. And the only way we heal that is by taking responsibility. The post was about that, which I felt was very fine. (laughs) And I will never forget getting an email from my partner's friend who I don't even didn't even know she was on my mailing list. I've never heard of her in my life, had no clue who this person was. Obviously, she signed up for my mailing list because like I mean, I didn't put her there. And she emailed me and emailed Sian, my partner, losing her freaking mind, assuming that my blog post was about her sexual trauma that he was aware of and that he had told me about her sexual trauma. And then I had decided to write a blog post about her. Like that was the connection that had happened because I guess the way I wrote it was, it felt so real to her that the only conclusion, because when you're in a trauma response, you're not, we're not thinking clearly, right? Like the brain's turned off, the legs are moving, the heart is getting fright, flight, fight, or freeze, right? Like that's what we're doing. We're not thinking about, is this rational? And she was just completely convinced and she was threatening to sue us. She was threatening to have us. And I was like, I don't even have a business, man. I think that was the fourth blog post I'd ever written. I hadn't made a dime in my business yet. And I was just like, what is happening? (laughs) That was the first one. That was a pretty big one. Yeah. What was the second one? The second one was actually more recent. It was in um, December or January. So about six or seven months ago. And speaking a little bit differently, we weren't talking about sex, but sex related. We were talking about a miscarriage that we had had. And it was something that was not a big deal to us. I don't, to me, I know, and again, this is something that I have a very unique view on. I know a lot of people that have really struggled with conceiving and have really struggled with miscarriage. And it's been a very hard emotional journey for them. And I just personally, I don't see it that way. I don't see the reason to be for me in my life the reason to make it a traumatic experience. And we can talk about the definition of what trauma actually is in a minute. So it can be a traumatic experience. But for me, it was just like, oh, okay. Like, you know, baby didn't feel like coming this month. Like, that's cool. Maybe the egg wasn't, maybe the egg was a girl egg and spirit baby wants a boy egg or whatever. Like it was just such a, it was such a non thing to me. And Sian and I were on a live announcing something completely unrelated. And somebody in the comments had asked, Hey, did you get pregnant? Because they knew that we were on a conception journey at that time. And we just offhand, like just flippantly, because again, it's not a big deal to us. And we just weren't thinking that it would 
be a problem. We just said, oh, no, we miscarried. We didn't think. And we were also at an Ayurvedic retreat at the time. And it didn't occur to us that uh, my body was about to go through an incredible amount of detoxing with Ayurveda. So it was probably literally the worst time ever to try to conceive because my body was already going through releasing of so much stuff. And so we kind of just said, oh, yeah, well, we conceived. But then, you know, I went on an Ayurvedic retreat and the body went into shock and we miscarried like, whoops, we didn't plan that well. That wasn't very smart of us. Oh, well, lots of eggs in the sea. Like, you know, there's no shortage of sperm in this household. So we're not too worried about it. We'll keep going. And us being so casual about it also was super, super triggering. And we actually got a lot of messages from people because that live was watched by, I don't know, five or 600 people. And we got like quite a few messages from people being like, this is disrespectful from all the women that have challenged, have, you know, had a lot of challenge with conceiving. And I know a lot of women that have had trouble with conceiving that wish they could have kids that have had to do IVF to have kids that have adopted. Like I've been so close to all of that. And it just never even occurred to me that me not being upset (laughs) about a miscarriage would make everybody around me upset about my miscarriage. Right. Yeah. So that's so interesting. It's almost as if you don't wear your pain about what happened to you in a way that the rest of the world takes in as like, oh, you're crying. You're like a mess about it. Like if you are using the strategy, which I'm just going to also name that we might both, you know, I'm a three and you may be a three and one, and we also both lead with extroverted intuition. So the way that we're going to manage hard things in our lives is that we just don't feel it. We can just say, oh, yeah, there's like a choice point. I could get devastated about this, or I could shift my perspective to an optimistic future one. Like you said, there's many more eggs. There's lots of sperm. It will be fine. And Mm -hmm. so that I have come to find is both a blessing and a curse. It's why setbacks don't really slow us down and why you see threes just kind of tie that trauma up in a neat little bow, set it over here, and we just do the next thing. And that's a very three-ish way of being in the world. Now, part of our growth, which I'm sure you've experienced as well, is actually in the right set and setting and context. And, you know, we go back into these traumas and we experience the more tender part of it, like the grief, the fear, the alarmed aloneness, all of this we can go into, but it really requires a lot of presence and intentionality. And our default wiring is to be, well, that's not helpful today with what I'm trying to accomplish today. And for people that don't have that point three switch, where I don't know, have you seen the Book of Mormon? It's a musical, very popular. If people want to listen to this song, it's called Turn It Off. And it's such a three thing to do. Like, oh, I'm having a bad feeling, turn it off, you know, and you just move ahead. And it it's kind of making fun of that sunny disposition that Mormons tend to have and how they can be so positive, even in the face of things in their lives that can be hard. But that mm-hmm. is yet a coping strategy. And what I'm noticing is that I have been shamed for choosing that coping strategy as opposed to showing the collapse, showing the suffering, showing the, it's almost like I feel like there's a problem with me because I really benefit from 
separating from the emotion and sort of working it out in the mind and then dealing with the emotional pieces almost as a separate entity. But people will perceive us to be cold, to be not serious, to be glib, just because that's the way we process it. So I want to hold all the people that are listening to this and may be offended because we're talking about how difficult it is for us to have to put trigger warnings, to slow down, to do all of that due diligence before we talk about these topics. But I just think it's really helpful for people to see that there are all kinds of ways. And I think that both of us really care about showing up as healers in the world. And the fact that part of our structure and the way we do things is actually something that is judged by many, many people as being the wrong way to do it. I think that the assertive types, which are three, seven, and eight, and we've also acknowledged that we have a lot of seven energy, we just kind of move in and face that thing head on in that counterphobic kind of way. But I think it's interesting that there's shame that's put on people that don't shift into that other space because these other types are going to be more likely to be re-traumatized when you go into their trauma bubble without the delicacy that they prefer. So I just think it's complicated because I think it's important for people to self-identify and just know that about themselves. Like, oh, I'm a person that has a freeze response. I'm not going to be able to find my no when I'm talking to Stephanie. And so am I going to get mad at Stephanie that she didn't pick up on my no? Or am I taking responsibility for the fact that I couldn't access my no? And am I willing to be brave about that and go have a follow-up conversation because I know Stephanie cares? And can I approach Stephanie not in a way that she was wrong, that she didn't approach me or my topic differently, but that this is just what's happening. Like this is in the space. And now how can we work with that without saying, Stephanie's an asshole that just like blew into this space and needs sensitivity training versus not also making myself wrong and being like, oh, well, I need to find my no and I need to whatever. Like, I I just would love to be in a space where we are acknowledging these ways that our personalities work. And so what am I going to do as a person that can't find my no the next time I encounter an assertive type? who is unlikely to be tuned into the fact that I'm uncomfortable, I'm having a problem, I'm shutting down. And I just feel like it's such a sticky wicket. You know, it um, it really is. And it's funny because this is a conversation that I've been having a lot. It, it comes up because obviously consent, trigger warnings, and uh, cancel culture also. Like these are big, big topics in uh, the sex positive space because it's like, you know, you show an armpit and it gets taken as a breast and all of a sudden you're canceled off Instagram for, you know, 30 days or whatever. Like it just gets a little silly. The biggest thing, and and we're in a space right now where we have people that are becoming so aware of their archetypes, of their feelings, of their traumas of like, Ooh, I didn't like this. And Ooh, I didn't like that. And Ooh, this isn't the way I want the world to behave. And Ooh, I don't like, you know, we're, we're getting a lot of like, Ooh, I don't like that, which is a little bit of the collective awakening. Like we're becoming a lot more aware of our senses and less traumatized and numbed out, which is good. And we're getting bombarded with 
you know, a lot more crazy shit over the last three years. There's wars, there's like just, you know, globalization. We were very hyper aware of everything happening all the time. And it's always the scary shit. And so I feel like everyone's nervous system is just a little fritzed all the time. And what this has created is this like really powerful cancel culture environment where we have really encouraged people to say, I don't like that. I don't like what you said. Therefore, you are wrong and you shall be punished because you made me uncomfortable. And this is victim mentality. And this is really, really challenging for somebody that's done a lot of work and has had to take a lot of self-responsibility for my entire life and self-responsibility for my sexual trauma. Is it my fault it happened? No. Is it my fucking fault to heal it? Absolutely. My responsibility. And so the only way through, and this is the thing, the only way to heal anything, the only way to become, and I don't like, I don't use the word only lightly here, so just bear with me. But the only way to heal and the only way to become that better version of you is through radical self-responsibility. As long as you're sitting there pointing blame at the news anchor or the social media post or the friend down the street or your partner or your dog or your kids or your boss or whoever you decide to blame that day, as long as you're saying it's their fault and it's their problem, you're giving your power away. And you do not have the opportunity to evolve. You've literally put yourself into a power dynamic where you are the victim and you are at circumstance of the universe and at circumstance to the environment. And that's not a place to, that's not a safe place to be actually, honestly, even especially in today's world. So we really have to start encouraging people to take self-responsibility. You know, if I see someone's social media post and I don't like what they're saying, like, I don't like their perspective on whatever. There's a, I don't even need to name anything. There's a million polarizing topics out there. You can, your listeners can pick one. (laughs) If I don't like their perspective on something, I'm not sitting here going, Ooh, I feel like I just got punched in the stomach. Let me tell them, like, let me get into a little war on Instagram and tell them all the reasons why they're wrong. And then I'm going to report their post to Instagram and ha 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 ha. Hopefully they get taken down for 30 days. And now I feel better about myself. That's not power. That's not responsibility. Responsibility and power come from when I say, Ooh, that that stung. Okay. That, wow, that really hurt a little bit. I didn't like reading that. Why is that? What is inside of me that is reacting to this? What is inside of me that is saying this is inappropriate? What is inside of me that either wants to see that myself in that? Like, oh, I wish I was brave enough to talk like that. Or, oh, I really actually just don't think that's an educated decision. And it seems like it's a little unfortunate, like it seems a little unsafe, but like, I don't need to comment on that, you know? So when we start taking that self-responsibility, that's when we start to say, oh, I can actually enlighten because really this is what enlightenment is, right? It's just bringing light to the shadow parts of ourselves. That's all enlightenment is. And so the more we can use these, Osho always says the universe is my teacher. The more we can use these opportunities of like cringe moments, really, instead of making the person who made the cringe wrong, see it as like, oh, wow, hey, I've got a thing I get to grow into here cool. Like I I got a little wound here that I get to look at now. Like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for showing me this because now I get to do inner work and I get to enlighten as a result of that. So can I turn up the heat on this conversation a little bit? Cause it's so Please. juicy and fun. Okay. So let's talk about the concept of privilege. What's your mm. relationship to privilege? And for listeners, this is an area that I'm learning a lot about. So I'm just going to go ahead and name my privilege, which is a lot. I am a white woman. I am cisgender, I am heterosexual, and I come from, I'm a physician, Um, I'm upper middle class. I mean, there's a lot of 
monikers of privilege that I have, I'll just name that I can see that you're a white woman. Are you cisgender? Yes. Yes. And are you heteronormative or how do you identify in, with your sexuality if you don't mind sharing? No, I don't, I don't mind. I love this question. This is great. Let's get super juicy and personal. I would identify the easiest. I hate this word, actually. It's so ugly to me. So I'm like working on finding a better, sexier sounding word. But I identify most closely with pansexual, which basically just means everything under the sun. If you're a nice human with a great heart and a sexy body, like I'm here for it. And let's also talk about the monogamy polyamory spectrum. I think this is another one that we we're just coming into language for. How are you on that spectrum? So people that see me in public or see me on social media would assume that I identify as monogamous. I've been in a long-term relationship for three years now. I don't share photos of other partners, but we are in what we would define as like a, I don't know, monogamish. Again, weird language hasn't caught up yet. Essentially an open relationship with specific key factors. And especially as we start, and we'll talk about this at some point in the podcast, I'm sure it'll come up, but especially as I start exploring more into the sex magic piece, which is one of my works, additional partnered practices are a very big part of that. So where I identify again is very fluid. I have one person that I live with, I share business with, I share expenses with, we would look like a married couple, but there's definitely other partners consensually on both sides of the equation. Sometimes actually quite often they're shared. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for just letting us hear about this because I think feeling free to express our identity, however it is in this moment. And I just want to name that our identities evolve over time. I mean, we're seeing this in the, the gender world where, you know, people have identified as one gender for decades. And now that we're in a space where people really can turn inward, do this kind of exploration, I can't tell you how many people I know that now discover that they're changing their pronouns or they're evolving their sexuality. I mean, there's just so much discovery that goes on in this world that I just think it's important to acknowledge that even though I'm super into typology, I mean, you know, I know that my fixation is at point three. Does that mean that I believe that I am a three and that that is who and what I, no, of course not. Like these are just descriptors that help us to tell each other sort of where am I in my identity journey at this point in time. And I think that's why even within the Enneagram, you know, I say, oh yeah, I've been really working with my seven energy, you know, even though I know that's not where I fixate, but we're going to visit all the Enneagram points. We're going to visit all the cognitive functions. We're going to, if we're really conscious and we're really on a journey where we're awakening, we're going to explore, well, how do I know that I identify as female? How do I know that I am identifying as heteronormative? How do I know that where I, I've been talking a lot about the monogamy polyamory spectrum, because that's an area that I've been playing with going sort of in and out of episodes of monogamy and polyamory. And people will be like, yep. oh, you're polyamorous. And I'm like, well, no, I'm living polyamorous right now. And now I happen to be choosing a period of monogamy. So it's just different. And how do we describe all of that? It's really, really interesting. So that is one of the things that I want to do is just invite anyone who's comfortable to come on and talk about your journey of identity. And mm -hmm. I think that that's such a juicy, exciting thing to talk about. So I'm, you're my first person that has really been willing to come into this space and just explore how it is for you. So I want to express gratitude for that. Pop in the cherries left, right, and center. I'm here for it. <laughs> Perfect. 
<laughs> so, but let's talk about privilege because I actually feel like one of the privileges that I carry is that I think that having a fear response that's counterphobic that allows me to kind of lean in and feel the energy of it, as opposed to having a stress response that causes me to flee or causes me to freeze, dissociate, not be able to find my no, I'm actually starting to lean into that as being a privilege. How does that land with you when I say that? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm definitely, as you're sharing that, I'm looking back at, you know, I have my my life timeline, all the important moments and all the like big events are kind of flowing in my mind. And I'm thinking, yeah, that probably is a pretty good pattern to have. And then I'm evaluating in my head, like, would I consider it a privilege? I would definitely consider it a an advantage for me specifically. And then the argument that kind of comes in my head is, Yes, that I perceive it as an advantage and it's treated me very well in my life, but I'm not everybody. Not everybody desires the kind of life I have. And so what appears to me to be a privilege and appears to me to be a strength for somebody that just really doesn't have interest in having this like life that's kind of chaotic, maybe to them that's a detriment, right? Like maybe to them they're like, what? I need to lean in. Like I, I'm perfectly, I think it's a privilege that I can feel a pain and I can just go hide in my little hole and I can just like read a book. Like I have so many friends that when they have a trauma or something happens, they have the the flight that's theirs. They're like, okay, I'm overloaded. I can't do this. I need to leave. I need to like have a foot soak. I need to curl up in a cozy blanket. I need to read a book. Don't talk to me for a week. Like that's their thing. And they love that. And if I were to ask them, do you think that's an, a privilege or an advantage? And would, do you think what I have is a privilege or an advantage? They'd probably tell me that I they think I'm crazy. <laughs> well, let's and talk about that, the freeze response, though. Do you think people yeah. would say losing my voice, losing my ability to have agency in the world because my stress response is freeze? I get so overwhelmed that I actually leave myself and there is no choice. Like if we think of that animal that freezes in the wild, their nervous system shuts down and they look dead for all practical purposes. Do you think there are people that would be like, I'm so happy that I don't have any choice when my stress response gets activated? I mean, I don't know if I would say it's like happy because it's still a trauma response, right? So like, let's just say like, I don't think any trauma response is like a good response, right? Like that, I mean, yes, it's it's evolutionary, but unless you're actually about to get eaten by a bear or you're actually about to get hit by a truck, there's really, for most intents and purposes, no need for what we define as a trauma response. Like, this is not saying that people don't have trauma. All humans have trauma. And again, I'm open to have a conversation about that as well. What I'm saying is it's maladaptive. Like, that severity of fight, flight, or freeze is in 95% of Western, at least Western listeners' <laughs> experience, is completely maladaptive, no matter what way you look at it. So is it like, is one better than the other? It's like, well, I don't know. If you have a boat that sinks, is that better than an airplane that can't fly? I'm not really sure, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like they all kind of suck. They're all maladaptive. What I can say is that I have learned to, and it sounds like you have as well, to, and rather innately, not even intentionally. It's not like I was like, I want to learn this skill. We just, we developed the ability to use that as a superpower. 
And that has made it into a privilege, right? Like that, oh, this is uncomfortable. I don't like this. I'm going to run into it and find out why. For us, that has become a superpower. So how can the freeze response become a superpower? I don't know. I'm just unpacking this with you live right now. Like how is the, I've lost my no, I'm feeling like I'm being re-traumatized and I have no ability to say anything about it in that moment. Can we see how that could be a superpower? Yeah, I mean... I think the only, and this is guys, this is talking off the cuff. I have not, like, this is not an area I'm researched and we're just having like a side conversation here. But so if this is triggering or upsetting or doesn't feel aligned or is against any kind of research, I, I apologize. This is just what's coming out of my brain right now. To me, where I can see that being a superpower, and this is coming from my own personal experience, is being in a freeze response, it stops you from saying no, but it also stops you from saying yes. So the freeze also, in my opinion, stops you from saying yes to things that you like, you know, me as a people pleaser, if I was like feeling a little threatened, I was like, yes, I'll do this thing for you. Yes, I'll do this thing for you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. Oh, what? You want me to go take that hill and conquer this mountain and do this project because you're my boss? Like, yes, I'll do all the things. I'll do it all. And that led to burnout for me. And observing friends that tended to get a little overwhelmed and almost like shut down and, and actually coworkers most specifically, I remember I can think of two that if the energy in a room got hot, they would just, and I didn't recognize this as freeze at the time, but they would just shut down. Like they would just stop talking. And again, not being educated and not being a trauma response at the time. I think I was 23 years old at the time and them obviously not knowing that's what was happening, but that also meant that they never got overloaded with work. Boss never gave them more. Right. So do I think that's a superpower? I don't know. I'm not that person. I can't say, oh, hey, not take getting more work is going to be a superpower. But I do think that you can, each person learns to adapt their innate skills in a way that hopefully is suitable for them if they have the ability to do that. And there's going to be benefit in everything, right? Every single thing can have a benefit if you choose to look for it. It's just a matter of whether you you choose. And it's hard for me to say because I've not had a freeze response personally. Yeah. And I I don't either. And so, well, that's not true. I, I actually have identified freeze responses inside of me and they're probably adaptive for me because the way that it shows up for me is that when I do one of these things that steps inside of somebody's trauma bubble and now they're upset with me, I go into this fix-it mentality where I prioritize their needs over mine. And I'm just trying to figure out how I feel about that because suddenly this person seems really wounded and I really want to care for them. But then I realized that it was really hard for me too. And so where do I go with that? Because I think that when your stress response is either tend and befriend, which is like, oh, let me make it better for you or fight, like back the fuck off, you know, that I need to be mindful of those responses. And it's almost more the tend and befriend run because I just want to make it better for that person. And if it is somebody that has a history of trauma, and if it is somebody that I deeply care about, it almost feels like I am in the position of privilege because in that moment, I'm not the one who's in pain. So can I increase my capacity for their pain, however it's expressing itself? And depending upon the relationship, it would be lovely for that person to also be able to empathize with my pain. But I'm coming to see that I think this is an unrealistic expectation. And I think that I need to go get the empathy from somebody who is in my demographic like you, 
for an example, because like we both get into the same situations and they're painful for us. And so we have a shared lived experience around that. Just like, I'm going to go ahead and say, if I can commit a microaggression to a black person, it does seem like I would love that black person to see me for my well intention. And yet there can be impact. So do I go to that impacted black person and say, will you please see my white perspective? It may Mm. be too tender for that black person to do that. So I have to go to my white communities who deeply care, who also have committed countless microaggressions. And we get empathy and resonance with each other so that now we can have the capacity to go back into this super highly charged space. And I mean, the same thing happens in the LGBTQ community. Am I going to expect a very traumatized, you know, transgender queer person to hold my pain around having harmed them? Probably I can't expect that. But at the same time, I just am so glad that we're having this conversation to just say, how do we take care of ourselves? Because just because we come from a place of privilege doesn't mean that we don't also suffer, that we don't also need support. But I'm just talking about this because I think all of us can just check in and recognize that people who have a freeze stress response, I'm coming to view that as like a vulnerable group that I Mm. just need to, that I just want everybody to know, like, what is your stress response? Like, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a label on our forehead that like my stress response is freeze. And I think the reason that I'm bringing this up is because my listeners know that I have a lot of nines in my life. I don't know how much you know about Enneagram type nine. Do you know anything about that type? It's actually the one type that I know very little about. So I'm uh, excited to be educated. Yes. So let me educate anybody who doesn't know Enneagram type nine. They're called the peacemakers or the negotiators very frequently. And so their trigger is basically any discomfort or unease in the space. A point nine in general has a very hard time finding their no because they're so worried that if I don't agree with you, that if I don't go with the flow, that there's going to be a rupture to this connection. So we all have some nine energy inside of us. We can all probably think of a time that I wanted to say no, but the connection with you was more important to me. So I said yes. And then later on, I kind of regret it. And I'm like, why the hell did I say yes to that? So we all have a different relationship to that. But I think that that's a common experience. That's the nine that's inside of all of us. But if you are a type nine, it takes an incredible amount of work to actually get to the place where you can tell somebody no. And it's as much work as it is for us to just sit with our impulse to do something, to say something, to react in some way. Like that's really hard for me. I'm imagining it's hard for you too when you get really fired up, like to just sit with it. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's funny because I've actually been journeying something kind of similar as far as the, like, you know, the energy and getting really fired up and like how to handle that. My partner and I have been in a situation where I've been very in my feminine energy and I've had a lot of emotions moving lately and I've been transmuting a lot of stuff. There's been a lot of big emotions and he has wanted to, he's, he's an eight wing nine. And so he's had a lot of like, oh, I want to like fix this and I want to make this better. And like, Oh, you big emotions, big emotions, big emotions. Okay. Let me fix, fix, fix. No, you don't have to feel this way. Like, And sometimes that comes out as 
you're what you, the reason you're upset is wrong and i need to fix that for you and tell you why you're wrong and you can imagine exactly how well that goes <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so this has been a thing even that we're living right now is like learning how to but i'm learning it in reverse because usually it's been me having to learn how to hold space for other people having big emotions and not trying to fix them and not trying to like you know just allowing them to be upset and now i'm on the receiving end of like I just got to let this big emotion move. And you know what? Once it moves, I'm going to be fine. It's not going to be a big deal anymore. I'm going to be probably fine in about 90 seconds. But if anybody comes in at any point and does anything other than just hold space, it's like it gets a chink in the energy flow and it can restart the cycle. Yeah. So having that perspective has been really interesting for me because now I can look back and be like, fuck, like I was genuinely doing my best with my friends that were experiencing big emotions, but like I can see now why it did not help. And I did not know that at the time. Yeah. Well, I'm just going to bring us back to the beginning of the conversation because I want to name that I agree with everything you said about victim mentality not being helpful for personal growth. But I also just want to expose our own personal judgments we have around people that are in victim mentality. And that Mm -hmm. when somebody comes at us on social media or, you know, however it is that we were, that once again, they're doing that because they're having this big emotion. And my response is to be like, well, back off. Like, I'm just speaking my truth and I'm just like being the way I want to be and get out of your victim mentality so that you can grow and change and evolve and get beyond all this big emotion And I'm just naming that my own relationship to that, I'm starting to see, you know, I'm not supporting them, actually. I'm sort of telling them that they're wrong for being in victim mentality, which I do believe. I do believe that if we all had more personal responsibility for our emotions, that we all heal more quickly. And yet, do I need to just keep doing my work so that I can meet what I'm going to label right now as victim mentality. I'm imagining people that are hearing this are not appreciating that label. And I'm just putting words out there. Like notice how these words are in our nervous systems, whether you're the person who gets annoyed with people that express what we're calling in this moment, victim mentality, or whether you are a person who's very familiar with that flood of emotions. And maybe you're a person that, hates Stephanie and I right now. And you know, (laughs) like I'm just, and I'm laughing because that's going to be painful for both of us because I know that we deeply care, but I just love taking words that have any charge to them and then unpacking, can I find within myself how much I love it when I'm having big emotions and that person can just be with my big emotion with love and like want to care and support versus put some kind of label on it and it goes both ways. So I think that that's what I'm working around here is just inviting all of us to recognize where we hold our judgments, what's comfortable for us, what's uncomfortable for us. Can we get really curious about that and just have more conversations about it? I think that's where I'm at with it right now. Yeah, you know, and and to come back to the, you know, the victim mentality and the, well, victim mindset. And again, I mean, I'm using that word flippantly. I agree with you. It might be very triggering for people. For me, it's just, it's just a word. So like, you know, whatever energy you're attaching to it, that's your energy. But I, as someone that has, have, has been very vocal about very challenging topics, 
on social media for the last three years and have had quite the stance on, I mean, I've always had a stance on obviously like equality as far as, you know, Black Lives Matter in Canada. I'm not going to say Canada doesn't have this problem because of course they do, but like we didn't have the big uprising that happened in the States right before uh, COVID and then COVID happened. And, you know, there was a lot of LGBT rights. I've always been very open talking about abortion rights and like all of these very polarizing topics. I'm always very open about all of them. And especially in the last few years, when I started adding sex into that, I had to start learning that like, I wanted so badly at the beginning to hold space, not even explain myself, but really hold space for people that were very triggered by what I had to say. And I took it upon myself because it was just so important to me. And I cared so deeply. Like if you're triggered by me expressing my own sexual energy, like a, I didn't mean to upset you. Obviously I did not mean for that, but also B I know that the reason you're upset is because you have some kind of trauma around this thing. And I just want to help you heal that so badly. And so I would go into my comments and I would have these, like, I would try to help really try and help everybody. And then I, you know, I went through this journey where I was trying to help everyone in the comments. And then I would write a post that was true to my heart. And then I'd rewrite it like 18 times because I'm like, okay, I got to make sure that I like use this proper pronoun. And I phrase it this way. And I, and by the time I was done, the thing I posted wasn't even what I meant to say, because it has been so re-edited based on not offending people and not potentially pissing off Aunt Sally or whoever else might potentially be listening. Like that, that self-censorship became so severe that I lost my voice and I lost my message. Or I just wouldn't post anything because it was like, First, the process is going to be so long. And then even if I go through and I make it not what I wanted to say, somebody's still going to get pissed off about it. And then I'm going to have to expend even more energy trying to make them feel better about why they're mad at me. It just became exhausting. And I had to really sit with, okay, so like, what do I do with this? Like where I believe in equality and I believe in inclusion and I believe that we shouldn't be assholes for no reason. All of those things are valid. And I really do do care about people and the fact I don't want to hurt anyone on my social media. Like, I, all of these things are valid. I have such a huge heart and I am exhausted to death of having to censor myself so severely that I can't even like my message is lost and people are still mad about it anyways. And it just became this thing. And I had to come to the space of, you know what, I'm just going to say it the way that it comes out of my heart. I'm going to trust that the way it comes out of my heart is the way it's meant to come. That includes some swears, fine. If that includes maybe something without a trigger warning that should have had a trigger warning, fine. And I'm just going to have to let that be. And it's not my job to hold space for every person on Instagram who has an opinion about my journey. And that was such an important transition for me because this started happening when I started growing. And my Instagram account is uh, following is not huge, but it's very opinionated. And when I hit like, around a thousand followers, which again, is not a lot. But when I hit a thousand followers, this became an issue because all of a sudden I had a lot of opinions and I literally didn't have, like, I I couldn't grow because my energy was just so bogged down with everyone. So I had to really come to just like radical self-permission that I'm doing the best I can. I trust my message has good intentions. I trust that it's said with love and it's said with heart and if somebody really needs me and wants me to hold space for them, if they come to me, I will hold it for them, but I don't need to white knight everybody. Thank you so much for sharing all of that, Stephanie. I think that it is really, really beautiful to see this perspective that you're speaking to. And I'm going to put a little Myers-Briggs on top of this because 
What we're talking about is the function of extroverted feeling, which is also sometimes called harmony. And this is basically the way that I pick up what's going on inside of you and how much juice I have to step into your space and sort of do your work. I almost want to say for you, because some of us are better at introverted feeling and some of us are better at extroverted feeling and it just where it falls in your stack. Like none of us chose to be wired the way that we're wired. But the reason that you and I are not mainstream women is because extroverted feeling is a dominant function in over 50% of the population. It's either Hmm. number one or number two in over 50% of the population. Okay. So yeah, like that's a big deal. And this is why social media has unpacked all of this stuff because now we're seeing extroverted feeling, which is basically how are we engaging in a social way? It's all about how am I making you feel? How are you making me feel? And extroverted feeling is this function where we figure out what the social rules are and how we're going to navigate them. The only reason why I speak And why I share my opinion with you is because I'm giving you my social location by telling you that. I'm telling you what I care about. I'm telling you what I would do. I'm telling you what I won't do because that's communicating my value system to you. And that's actually giving information that now I can use to say, oh, do I feel like there's enough similarity between us that I consider you to be a part of my group or a place that I feel comfortable or is the information that we're sharing or not sharing, you know, am I now deciding inside of my mind, I find things you're saying are activating disgust or rage or fear. And I want to push that away. Like you are not like me. And now I might have a tendency to other you if I don't recognize that you just simply activated one of my circuits. And now I get to go work with that but maybe I don't have the skill set yet to do that. Maybe I have no consciousness that that's even what happened inside of me. So the fact that over 50% of the population is living with this either as what we call the hero or auxiliary function means Mm. that people think that they are the authority on what the social milieu should be just because that function is so accessible to them and it's like what they're tracking and doing all the time. So I think that the social instinct and extroverted feeling are different things. I can speak about that and what that would look like because you can actually be social dominant and have extroverted feeling being deeply unconscious. And I'll talk about what that looks like in a minute. But for an ENTP, it is not one of my top two functions. It's my third function. So what that means is that I'm very, very sensitive to it and I'm going to do the wrong thing a lot because I don't see things the way that over 50% of the population is focusing on extroverted feeling. So I'm just going to kind of exuberantly go in. We call it the eternal child. It's a place I go for play, but my competency is about the level of a 10-year-old. So when I'm working with somebody who has extroverted feeling, the over 50% of the population where it's dominant or secondary, they're going to be like, how did you miss that? Like, this is Hmm. just the way the world works. Why are you not picking up the signal that I'm picking up? And that's why. 
But it actually leads me to like have these thoughts, and maybe it's true. I mean, only 2% of women are ENTP preferences. So by definition, I am neurodivergent. You know, if if I'm different than 98% of the population, every female ENTP out there, welcome to being neurodivergent. Now, the, the issue with neurodivergent is does that mean there's something wrong with me and I need to learn how to be like 98% of the population? No, I mean, I have this gift, like I have this ability to kind of unpack these things. I'm at actually a very unique place with extroverted feeling in that I'm going to screw it up all the time, but I actually deeply care and have even more intuition for how to navigate that space because it's still in my consciousness. Now, as an ENFP, you have it as six out of eight. Okay. Oh, interesting. Yes. It is so interesting because since over 50% of the world is wired to be taking in the experience of others and having this ability to sort of intuitively just process it and then know how to sort of respond and take care of that emotional space for the other person, what they're missing is what's authentic and true for them. And if you are an ENFP, your superpower, your auxiliary function is introverted feeling. So even though you started off with all that extroverted intuition, as you've been growing, you've been coming into closer and a wiser relationship to who and what you are and actually moving through the world with your authentic gifts is actually what you're here to do. And if extroverted feeling is six out of eighth function for you, what you're going to notice is that if you have to go into that person's space and if you have to try to do the care for them, that that is going to drain your energy tank so quickly that you won't actually be able to express your gifts. So what you were saying about how it was robbing you of your voice, it wasn't even your messaging anymore. Of course, that's true. So it's almost like we need to look at the ENFPs in our lives, as well as the ISTJs, as well as the INTJs. Like there's going to be all of these types that have extroverted feeling low down in the cognitive stack, they are not wired to be your accompaniment person like when you're highly triggered unless they're using tools that they have learned. And Stephanie has extroverted feeling in the critical parent function, which means that when we learn how to do extroverted feeling, that critical parent function is actually super important for our professional lives. So that's why Stephanie is now trauma-informed. And that's why she said, if you come to me, if you ask me to hold the space when I'm running a retreat, when I'm doing all of these things, she has learned how to bring extroverted feeling online. It's like we have made an agreement that I'm going to care for you. And I've taken the time to educate myself on how to do that. And I can provide that safe container and I can do all of these things. But if I'm putting up a blog post, and you're a random commenter, no, I don't have enough energy to do it all day, every day. But because it's not in my consciousness, because it's not on my radar, you are actually getting the gift of authenticity. You are getting the gift of my insights and my connections and my feeling of what is right in this world and how we need the planet to start hearing certain messaging so that I can help us move the arc of consciousness. So I think it's just really important, and this is why I love Myers-Briggs and cognitive functions, because when we look at what are we good at and what are we developing and where are we going to continue 
to just not have the juice that some people will, we can just start to view everyone as having their own specific role. And we can give other people a break because we're just not going to be the person that we want to have doing that thing 24-7 because that's not their gift. And so it's so important to know what our gift actually is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, how uh, it just resonated so much for me when you're saying you're going to start off kind of in the space of healing more other people, and then eventually you're going to come into your own authenticity, and that's going to be where you really flourish. And I feel like that is so true. We spoke in the last episode about how, you know, I started in corporate and I was proving everything for everyone else. And I was like, cool, I can feel that this is important to my mom and this is important to my dad and this is important to my family for me to like hit this milestone or achieve this thing. And then I got it all and I was like, what the fuck? Why am I even here? This sucks. Like, I don't, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's nice making good money, but like, it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth the the cost, right? It will drain your tank to not live inside of your authentic self. Like you are wired to be Stephanie and to let Stephanie's flag fly. When you're doing that, you will be energized. You will be in alignment with your purpose and not everybody is going to like it because not everybody is going to like your flavor and that's okay. You will continue to probably ruffle feathers, but I'm actually hoping that this podcast really supports you because when people ruffle your feathers, you should like direct them here to just kind of understand what's happening and to recognize that that person probably has extroverted feeling Mm. as their first or second function. And now they can look at how much they have an attachment to what the social rules are and what is or isn't okay, or they have extroverted feeling as seventh or eighth function, actually even lower than yours. And so they've latched on to just certain extroverted feeling things, but they're using it in what we call like a trickster way, or it's like their demon or their, and it can become their daemon if they go ahead and do their own work around that but it's just to recognize that there's something happening here. It's either we're blind to something or we're being neurotic about something. And it's just giving us the opportunity to go ahead and develop that. Well, and that even brings us back to, you know, at the beginning, I mentioned Ken Wilber, whose work is amazing, Spiral Dynamics. I think you'd actually really enjoy his his stuff if you haven't read it. Um, But again, that goes back to the addiction or the allergy, right? We're either blind to it. That's the allergy. It's just like not even there. We have either don't know it exists or we actively push it away and the addiction where we're neurotic. So it comes back to that polarity of like something that makes us uncomfortable. We have those two ways of dealing with it. You and I, we become obsessed. (laughs) Other people run away. And then we're now we're back into trauma responses. It's just so I love how we've gone so full circle in so many different topics. And then they all seem to come back to like, oh, here's these two different words from a totally different, I guess, methodology would be the correct word. But they literally all just mean the same thing from completely different lenses. Absolutely. And we're now I'm realizing we're going to need a third interview at some point in time. (laughs) But um, I want to finish today because we started in the beginning talking a lot about trauma. And I think it's important to define what is sexual trauma? I don't want you to share details of your story, like you said, that would not be kind to your family to share. But if you can like globally sort of, yeah, how do we know if we have sexual trauma? And I'd like to hear what you say. And then I'd like to share my perspective on it. Totally. And I'm really glad you brought this full circle because one thing I want as just as trauma, not necessarily sexual trauma, but I just want to address we talk a lot about trauma. We hear the word trauma a lot. And it can be very easy for us to think that 
trauma is something major, like a, a rape that you recall or a massive car accident or like finding a loved one who hung themselves. All of these things, by the way, have happened in my family. So like, these are very real in my reality. And those are big traumas. But the true definition of trauma in my line of work is anything that the body felt overloaded with such that it could not process. So that could be anything that could be, you can, you can literally get like, and some people like to call it big T trauma versus little T trauma. And at the end of the day, like it doesn't fucking matter. Your body treats it all the same. Your body's not like, Oh, that was a big traumatic event. And this is a little traumatic event. Anytime like your nervous system has an, like a switch that says it's overloaded. There's something in the electricity and I can't remember what it's called, but there's like an electrical circuit that has this kind of, it's like a tripwire or something. If there's, or surge protector, something like that. I don't know. I'm not an electrician, but there's something in electricity that says, if the energy goes above this amount, that's it. I'm done. We're fried. Turn everything off. And that's really when we're talking about somatics and we're talking about the body experience of trauma, which is, it's all stored in the body. That's basically what's happened is something like it could be your boss yelling at you. It could be that your mom didn't pick you up when you cried as an infant. It could be trauma from in the womb, like your mom getting super stressed while you were still in utero. Like we all, it's literally, in my opinion, I challenge you to find a woman that legitimately does not have what we would call sexual trauma, just because like you could watch a movie, you know, we see rape scenes and stuff on movies all the time. And that could very easily traumatize you. We could hear a girl scream down the street and that could traumatize you. Anything that the nervous system is incapable of processing in the moment will relate in some form of trauma. And now when we say sex trauma, that's a fluid term. I mean, I like, where do you even, where is it sex? And when is it not sex? Is oral sex sex? Is fingering sex? Does it have to be penis and vagina to be sex? Is Does it have to be penis? Does it have to be vagina? Like, you know, if I lick your ear, is that sexual? Like, who knows? Everybody's got a different definition, right? Well, if we're talking about children, I mean, you know, just an inappropriate touch that has sexual energy directed towards a child from an adult, it doesn't right. have to involve penetration at all. But yet that child is being exposed to energy that they're not ready to be exposed to yet. Yeah. Yeah. And that activates, you know, what I've learned from my own experience is that that activates certain channels within you. That energy is now basically turned on in you. And speaking openly here, my experience personally has been once that energy is activated in you and, and what I've observed in people that are close to me, it is more likely to reoccur. And it's also more likely that you as a child become hyperactive. Again, again, you can get an allergy or the addiction, but it's very common to see hypersexually active children. And the reason is because they've been quote unquote activated at an earlier stage. And it might not be that, you know, something really bad happened. It could just have been like a too long of a hug where the one person, one adult had sexual energy from something that wasn't even related to the kid and it got that transfer and that's now activated them. So when we say, well, what is sexual trauma? Like anytime you received sexual energy that your nervous system couldn't handle be defined as sexual trauma. That could be literally someone sending you a dick pic on Instagram. It, it could be seeing a porno that you didn't expect to see. It could be anything. So yeah, it, I well, think it's I'm even thinking around. that in the Enneagram community, we talk about the instinctual drives. And so these are things that are just going to turn on inside of us. And I think that we probably all have a different sensitivity as well. So what I'm imagining is that if you are a sexual dominant individual, which I believe you're just born with these 
different stackings, just like you're born with your personality and your temperament. I think that we're all born wired with different sensitivities to sexual energy. And I think that if you're sexual dominant, you're going to be sensitive to sexual energy in a way that a sexual middle or sexual blind person is going to have more protection because here you were this six-year-old listening in this context. And I'm just going to name that, like, I have four kids. And if I make like a sexual joke, it'll like totally blow by two of them. They don't hear it at all. And I have this one kid that's like giggling and like laughing and like totally getting it. And, you know, it's just funny. Why is that? You know, they have different tuning forks to this energy. So I'm also naming that because I'm imagining that if you're a parent with a hypersexual child, now you can have all this shame about activating their sexual energy in some way that was too young. If you're a sexual dominant individual, which by the way, Stephanie, we've identified in the last episode that you are, you're tuned into these frequencies in a way that as a sexual blind individual, I don't think I was even tuned on to them. I mean, literally my parents are both sexual blind. There just was no sexual energy in my household, in my family. Like sexual energy is just not even really there. So for me, my sexual energy got activated at the appropriate time in high school when I was going through puberty and I started engaging with boys. And I actually, my first relationship was a two and a half year beautiful relationship where we were each other's first everything, like first kiss, first date, all the way through, you know, our first losing our virginity together. And I actually have so much gratitude for that. It was such a beautiful, healthy, developmentally appropriate time to come into my sexual energy. But the sexual trauma that I'm referring to is that when my parents found a condom wrapper that we didn't dispose of appropriately, they lost their fucking minds. I mean, they forbade me from seeing him. They sent me to my room where they had stripped my bed as a sign of shaming and made me put my clean sheets back on. They had taken my phone out of my bedroom. They had taken my car keys away from me. And they took away all the pictures that I had of this boy that I was deeply in love with. And this was like right before I was turning 17. It really wasn't that it was inappropriate. And the fact that they found a condom wrapper indicated that we were actually having safe sex and thinking about contraception. And I mean, we were like such nerdy kids. He was on his way to MIT. I'm on my way to Princeton. I mean, like we were like, the best kids on the planet who actually were making very conscious, informed, beautiful, beautifully evolving decisions. And I literally got put on house arrest. And this was traumatic. And I've tried to talk to my parents about it. And the response that I've always gotten is that you don't understand when you're a parent, you will treat your kids the same way. This is what parents do. It's our responsibility to protect you from an accidental pregnancy, from whatever it is. But it was very traumatic. And this is why my response, even at that time, that activated all of my fire because my secondary power is this introverted thinking, which is like the logic of it. And when I was literally looking at what was happening in my almost 17-year-old brain, I'm like, this does not make sense. You know, like, I'm like, this is, this is not logical. And so the fact that I have an assertive personality type, 
and the fact that it didn't make sense in any way, shape, or form to me. And I think that in today's era, many of us are having the reaction I saw on your face when I was telling the story, which is shock. But I bet if you're a 75-year-old listener, which is my parents' era, that that was how we dealt with sexuality. But because my superpower is introverted thinking, I like knew that that was fucked up like from the moment it was happening. And I absolutely refused to comply with their wishes. And it was like mission impossible. I literally devised, like I used every ounce of my brain power to outwit my parents. And I continued to see this boy. And I mean, it was, it was fun actually, because I was so activated and I am so grateful because my parents actually gave me the gift of a lot of confidence. They gave me mm. the gift of a very secure upbringing. And until it moved into the realm of sexuality, they were always like, you go, you can do anything, like you are powerful. And so they put this message inside of me, which I'm incredibly grateful for. But when I was almost 17, and then we did not see eye to eye in this sexual instinctual energy zone, well, now I just became not like, and this is the point three thing, I was super sneaky about it. It was just like, I just made sure that I didn't get caught. I wasn't yeah. like, you know, but then, you know, after a few months, it was just getting exhausting. And then I actually did just walk up to them and I'm like, yeah, you know, just not doing this anymore. I'm seeing him. Goodbye. Got in his car, drove away. And they had kind of realized that they had lost that battle. And then it just became something we no longer spoke of that they were not mm -hmm. happy about, but that they also recognized that they had to accept on some level but it still is juicy for us. Like we still can't talk about it. Like this is the one thing that I wish I could talk to my parents about. And I don't know if they'll hear this episode or not, but this is an example of how if somebody comes to you and says there was harm and I would love to heal this and I would love to unpack it and I would love to do this work, I do think that we should really open ourselves and really be willing to enter a repair process and take responsibility for our own fear that was activated, our own reactivity, so that then we can actually imagine what it was like for that person. And do we have the willingness to say, yeah, I think I, I probably was wrong in this instance. And so just to kind of wrap it back around to this whole conversation of privilege, as I'm coming into more and more contact with my privilege, and then starting to see that things are privilege that I have just it's confusing because on the one hand, as women, we're being told to become empowered and we're being told to like speak our truth. And then when I do that and it doesn't fit a social norm or I make a mistake that's like not trauma informed, now there's like, whoa, you know, but can I hold that? And, you know, I actually recorded a couple weeks ago a repair episode with somebody that I did walk into their trauma bubble who didn't have an ability to have their no. And even though it brought up all the feelings inside of me that you and I unpacked today, I can't be the person that is going to be the extroverted feeling master. Cause like I said, it's not in my top two functions, but at the same time, I think it's really important to have these conversations so that we can all see what's going on and that we can all come from this place of love of recognizing that, oh, like, I'm going to keep making mistakes. I'm going to step into people's trauma bubbles and then internally resourcing and checking like, what is this relationship to me? Do I want to put in the energy 
Why do I want to do that? And then just get really clear on my yes or my no. If it's a random Mm -hmm. internet comment on a blog post I wrote, you know, it's not that I don't care that that person was activated, but it's not useful for me to use my energy that way. If it's somebody that I interviewed and something happens, like I want this to be a safe platform and I want to model that I think repair process is important. And for those of us that don't have extroverted feeling higher up, or even for those of us that do, because what's going to happen if extroverted feeling is high for you is that you're going to believe that you have all the social rules when indeed who created those and why, and should they still be there? So wherever you are on this hierarchy, extroverted feeling is actually becoming one of my platforms because it is in my consciousness. I do feel it. I do have capacity, which is why I'm now trained in resonant healing and nonviolent communication. And I'm getting trained in psychedelic medicine, like all of these things where I do believe that I can create a safe holding container and I'm going to continue to make mistakes. And I, and I want to have these conversations because I think that something as delicate as how am I in relationship to my trauma response? How do I navigate both the people that cause trauma and the people that feel the recipients of trauma? I think I want to end this episode today just naming that we are all experiencing trauma. And just like you said, this is happening in every moment of every day. And if we want to get into restorative justice work, whether that's around sexuality, whether that's around gender, whether that's around race, whatever it is, it's just so important that all of these voices are heard. So I just want to end today by appreciating your authenticity I am going to request that anybody who has a response or reaction to anything Stephanie or I said that we can come on the podcast or have a private conversation with me or a private conversation with Stephanie. I know that we would love, I'm getting double thumbs up from her, that we do want to learn and we do want to keep developing this capacity for extroverted feeling that isn't our primary gift, but we know how important it is. And Stephanie, I'd just like to leave you with whatever final words you have, and then we'll figure out the next time we're going to get talk um, more about sex. So yeah, please, how is all that for you to hear? Uh, that, incredible. That was amazing. I'm just laughing about the like, yeah, we'll do a part three. I think you and I could end up doing like 15 parts and still we would end yes. up having these like really deep philosophical conversations. I love it. It's amazing. To close up, the the thought that as you were talking kept intuitively coming to me um, through through those multiple points was you know, with great power, it's so, this is so cheesy. It's like, this is a Spider-Man quote, everybody. With great power comes great responsibility. But what isn't discussed about is that that responsibility, we get to decide what that looks like. And we need to make sure that we take care of us first. I love that. And I use that quote all the time. So the invitation is, where is your power? Where are you responsible? And how are you taking care of yourself? And if you're feeling really edgy, really frustrated, very easily triggered, um, that's my number one barometer. It's like the flashing light on my dashboard that I need to go into my place of self-care. And maybe that looks like getting support from people that understand and know me. Maybe that looks like a good night's sleep. Maybe that looks like diving deeper into my own practices, but like whatever that is for you. And if you don't know, yeah, Meet with Stephanie or I, because we love helping people figure that out, right? Try an orgasm, start there, and then call me if that doesn't work. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, thank you, Stephanie. This was so much fun and I can't wait for our next talk. Have a great, great rest of your day. If you're enjoying these episodes, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and various Android platforms. If you leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, it helps a lot. If you have any questions you'd like addressed in a future episode, please email me at social at karenansmd.com. I also offer a wide variety of services at my practice, including typology, Enneagram coaching, nonviolent communication training, and mindfulness trainings for working with stress, anxiety, and food cravings. Please visit my website at karenansmd.com to schedule a free 30-minute consultation if you'd like to work with me in any way. We also have the opportunity for free classes.